We're in Daniel chapter 5 today, and we are, if uh, you were here last week, or if you, if you weren't, but you caught up and were able to listen to the sermon or watch the sermon, um, you know, you, you might just automatically think now chapter 5 is just a continuation directly after chapter 4. But there's about 30 years between Nebuchadnezzar when he is humbled before God and he turns to God and acknowledges that God is ruler over all and, and now to where Belshazzar is the one that's reigning. 30 years. So Daniel's an old man. Daniel is much older. And, and, and so Daniel is in kind of like what we would say semi-retirement. I mean, Belshazzar, the king now, doesn't really even know Daniel. Nebuchadnezzar knew him well. Nebuchadnezzar, he was part of the cabinet, part of, of, of Nebuchadnezzar's uh, advisors and wise men. But Belshazzar, he's heard of Daniel, but he doesn't know him. So King Nebuchadnezzar's off the scene, and Belsh Belshazzar is now in charge. And, and Belshazzar is... Um, he is not, um, not a son of Nebuchadnezzar. In the text, it says his son. Well, it's not a contradiction. It's not even a mistranslation. It's just used in the, in the term like Jesus when he talked to the Jews about, he said, Abraham, your father. He's talking about your ancestors, right? And that's how this is used here. It's not his birth son, but Belshazzar, Nebuchadnezzar is the ancestor of Belshazzar. So, after Nebuchadnezzar, there was a couple different people that were ruling as king. One died of natural causes, and then the person that's king now is someone by the name of, of Nabonidus. And Nabonidus takes the throne uh, through pretty sketchy means. Like they have the king before him is assassinated. And now Abonid Nabonidus is, is reigning, and um, he's away though. He's not there. He leaves Bel Belshazzar, his son, in command to oversee what's going on in Babylon. And this is a disaster because Bel Belshazzar is about to have this big drunken feast and it's, it's going to do it in direct mockery towards God and towards uh, toward, he's going to bring in all or bring out all of the gold and the silver vessels that Nebuchadnezzar took from Jerusalem. And he's going to drink and get drunk with these vessels. These were things that were sacred and holy. And, and Belshazzar is just going to do this in a defiant way, a very disrespectful way. And here's the thing, though. At this very moment, they're surrounded by the, the Medo-Persian army. And Belshazzar is just oblivious. He just has this, this sense of, of overconfidence. He doesn't think they're getting in. He doesn't think that Babylon can be touched. And he has this overconfidence. So what does he do? They're surrounded by their enemy. They're surrounded by the Medo-Persian army. So what does he do? Well, Belshazzar, the king, made a great feast to a thousand of his lords and drank wine before the thousand. And Belshazzar, while he tasted the wine, he commanded to bring the gold and silver vessels which his father, Nebuchadnezzar, or his ancestor, Nebuchadnezzar, had taken out of the temple, which was in Jerusalem. 
that the king and his princes and his wives and his concubines, yes, that's exactly what you think it is. He said, man, we're going to have this big drunken party and we're bringing all the important people in. We're going to probably do a lot of immoral things that we shouldn't do. And, and it's like the longer it goes, the worse it gets. The more they drink, the more dumb decisions they're making. And Belshazzar is going to cry. Yeah, not much has changed today, right? Not much has changed. So Belshazzar is going to, he's going to just in act of defiance and arrogance, he's going to go and bring in these vessels that were stolen from the temple as a way of saying our gods are greater the gods of uh, the, the gods of the Hebrew, the, they're, they're weak and frail. Their God is not powerful, but our God is mighty. And he's doing this while they're all getting drunk. So they brought the golden vessels that were taken out of the temple of the house of God, which was at Jerusalem. So these are vessels they stole from Jerusalem from the temple. Now, the book of Ezra tells us this was over 5,000 uh, vessels and, and, and different things that, that they brought, that Babylon brought out of Jerusalem. Because remember, Nebuchadnezzar in Babylon was known as the kingdom of gold. They had all this wealth because they would conquer. Not only would they take people captive, but they would take all their treasure. That's exactly what happened. And so they have all this treasury. And, and as they're getting more drunk by the minute, they have this great idea. We're going to go and get all of the golden vessels that we stole that, that Nebuchadnezzar brought. And we're going to drink out of them. So this is just, this is sacrilege. This is just really a blatant mockery. So now this isn't a perfect illustration uh, because this building that we're in is not a temple, right? It's just a building. But yet, I think we could all make the argument that really holy and godly things happen corporately together when we meet in this building, right? It's not about the building, but we have great memories. And when we gather here as a church, we gather to read the word, to study the word, to sing praises corporately to God. And so it's a holy place in that sense. So it'd be like if you on a Friday or Saturday night late, you're driving by, maybe you were at Walmart or something, grabbing a few last minute things really late and you drive by and you notice all the, all the lights are on. What's going on? Did I miss something? And you pull in the parking lot and you come in and you see just this big party that people are getting drunk and they're doing all kinds of unholy things on the screens instead of scripture verses. There's, there's, there's this immoral pictures and just, and you would say, wow, that is, that is sacrilege. That is blatant, just unholiness. It would be like that. Well, this is what Belshazzar, he is literally the rich, spoiled kid throwing a party when his dad's away. That's exactly what he's doing. And it's just getting crazier by the minute. And they're blatant just in their mockery towards God. Just this unholiness that's taken place. Well, that's going to come to an end very quickly. Because they drank the wine and they praised the gods of gold. And of silver and of brass and of iron and of wood and of stone. So they're giving glory to their false gods in direct defiance of the one true God. And so God shows up and says the party's over. In the same hour, the same hour, there came forth fingers of a man's hand and wrote over against the candlestick upon the plaster of the wall of the king's palace. 
And the king saw the part of the hand that wrote. So this, this is going to freak him out, understandably so. This hand and these fingers without a, without a body, without a person, just show up and start writing on the wall. This absolutely freaks out everybody. It says, and yeah, it would, understandably so. It would freak us out. It says the king's countenance was changed. So just think, this big party atmosphere, not a care in the world. Belshazzar knows that his city is surrounded, but he's so arrogant thinking that, that they're untouchable. He throws a big party, and they're all getting drunk while their city's surrounded. So that's the atmosphere, not a care in the world. Living in the moment, doing all kinds of dumb, foolish things, and then that changes. Because a hand shows up and fingers, and, 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 and it writes a message on the wall. This is, we refer to this, right, as the handwriting on the wall. You've heard that term. Maybe you've used that term. Well, God shows up, and he writes on the wall. This is direct defiance and arrogance against God, and God literally crashes this party. God says this party is over, and he writes on the wall, and he, and Belshazzar is troubled by this. It says literally in verse 6 that his knees were knocking. That's how afraid he was. His knees smote one against another. He is terrified. So this mood completely changes. This mood completely changes. He's not terrified of the army surrounding him. But he's terrified that this hand shows up. This writing on the wall. So what does he do? Well, he talks to the people that he thinks can tell him what's going on. You know, the magicians and his, his wise men, certainly they know of, you know, what's happening here. It's some kind of trick or something's going on and they can explain it to me, but they can't. So he says, the king cries aloud in verse 7. And he says to, to bring the astrologers, bring the Chaldeans and the soothsayers. This is kind of like what Nebuchadnezzar would do. Remember when he wouldn't understand his dream? He'd call in his wise men. He'd call in the astrologers. He'd call in his people that, that he thinks are going to be able to tell him what's going on. But the thing is, no one knows what's going on. No one knows the meaning of this writing. Some have suggested, commentators, and this is all guesswork, but you know, maybe it was written in Hebrew and none of them understood it or knew it. Or maybe God just put a veil over their eyes and none of them knew what was going on. But they couldn't figure it out. He's saying, look, whoever can tell me what this writing means, he said, I'm going to, I'll clothe you in purple. He's like, I'm going to make you third in command. Why third in command? Well, because he was probably second in command. His father, uh, Abinidus, was, was away and maybe even dead at this point, but they didn't know it. He might have been out fighting the, the Medo-Persian Empire, or maybe he just skipped town because he had a, a, better, a better sense than Belshazzar had of what was really going on. But he's offering them third in command. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to give you these gifts, but none of, them, none of them could make the interpretation known. Verse 8, it says, then came all the king's wise men, but they could not read the writing nor make known to the king the interpretation thereof. Then was the king Belshazzar greatly troubled, and his countenance was changed, and his lords were astonished. They were astonished. So now there's a sense of panic setting in. They don't know what's going on, but they know that they're no longer, that their, their attitude's different now. The party's over, now they're worried. 
Now they're scared. Now they're terrified of what is going on. And so here's then what happens. The queen, this is probably, this is probably the queen mother. Now, we know that the Belshazzar is somehow related to Nebuchadnezzar, and it might have been even like through marriage, but there was some kind of relation. And so this queen could possibly have been the daughter of Nebuchadnezzar. Not exactly sure, but the queen comes in. And the queen is, comes before the king and, and, and she said, oh, king, live forever. This is a, a term of respect to him. She says, let not thy thoughts trouble thee, nor let thy countenance be changed. She says this, there's a man in, the, in your kingdom. In other words, I know this guy. I know this guy. He's in the kingdom. And this guy in the kingdom was who Nebuchadnezzar brought in. And he could tell Nebuchadnezzar his dreams and what those dreams meant. Well, Again, Daniel's, Daniel's an old man at this point. Daniel's in retirement, so to speak. And, but yet, Belshazzar's like, yeah, I've heard of this guy. Let's bring him in. So the queen says, look, this guy can help you. He has understanding and wisdom. They said the wisdom of the gods are in him. And says, you need to bring in Daniel. It says that, that there's an, verse 12, for as much as an excellent spirit and knowledge and understanding, interpreting of dreams, and showing of hard sentences and dissolving doubts. In other words, what other people don't know what it says and what it means, Daniel can tell you. She says that the king named him Belteshazzar. Remember, King Nebuchadnezzar changed his name. Baal is God, a false god to attribute to the gods of the, the Babylonians. But, but Daniel had the spirit of the true living God in him. And she said, now let Daniel be called. He'll show you the interpretation. Verse 13. Then was Daniel brought in before, then was Daniel brought in before the king. And the king spake and said unto Daniel, art thou that Daniel, which art of the children of the captivity of Judah, whom the king my father brought out of Jewry? I have heard of you. He says, I've heard of thee and the spirit of the gods is in thee. And that light of understanding and excellent wisdom is found in thee. And now the wise men, the astrologers, they've brought in before me that they should read this writing and make known the interpretation thereof. But they could not show the interpretation of the thing. He says, I've heard of thee that thou canst make interpretations and dissolve doubts. In other words, you can make this mystery go away because you can explain things. You can tell us things. You know you have the spirit. He said the spirit of the gods. Well, we know it wasn't the spirit of the gods. It was the spirit of the one true God that was in Daniel. And so Daniel's brought before him. And the king says, look, if you can tell me what this interpretation is, you're going to be clothed in scarlet. In other words, we're going to deck you out with the finest of clothes. And you're going to have a gold chain around your neck. Like, we're going to take care of you, Daniel. We'll make, we'll make this worth your while. We're, you're going to be paid and paid well. He's like, and not only that, I'm going to make you third ruler in my kingdom. But all these things are empty. They're meaningless. And Daniel knows they're meaningless. Because he knows now that this kingdom is coming to an end. And it's coming to an end quickly. Daniel answered, he said before the king, let thy gifts be to another give thy rewards to another. He's like, yeah, I'm going I'm to read the writing 
and I'm going to make it known to you, but he's like, I'm not impressed, and I don't want your gifts. I don't want to be clothed in all this fancy clothing. I don't want a gold chain. I, I don't want to be made ruler in the kingdom. Keep your gifts. Give it to someone else. And we see this is like, this is consistent with Daniel. Like he doesn't fear man. And here's why. Because he fears God. And sometimes we think that like, well, you know, you need to get to that point in life where you're not afraid of anybody. And a lot of times we think of because of like maybe physical strength. Like, you know, I, you go to the gym and you work out and you're, you're strong. Or maybe you, you, know, you learn some martial arts or, you, or, or, or whatever the case might be. We look at it as like from the physical standpoint of being fearless. Well, Daniel's an old man here. Probably doesn't have a lot of physical strength. But not fearing man doesn't really have anything to do with the physical strength. It comes down to what was within him. Daniel feared the one true God. Daniel knelt before the one true king, so he was not impressed with the kings of this earth. And Dan, not only that, but Daniel saw how quickly God humbled King Nebuchadnezzar, who was much mightier than Belshazzar ever will be. Daniel's not impressed. Daniel's not afraid. He's got this boldness about him. And I just, I kind of view this, I don't know this for certain, but I almost get like the, the Clint Eastwood vibe. Daniel walking in here, just kind of this, this old, tough, chiseled man. Like, he's not afraid of anyone. He's like, king, I'm going to tell you the interpretation of this. I don't want your gifts. I'm going to tell you what this means. But before that, I need to tell you a story here. He says, verse number 18, O thou king, O thou king. He's like, son, son, I need to tell you something. He says, the most high God gave Nebuchadnezzar, your father, a kingdom and majesty and glory and honor. He said, the majesty that he gave him, all people, nations, languages, they trembled, they feared before him. Nebuchadnezzar was a feared king. It says that he, whom he would, he slew and whom he'd keep alive, he kept alive. Whom he'd set up, he set up and whom he would, he put down. In other words, Nebuchadnezzar, the king, your, your ancestor, Nebuchadnezzar, he lived and acted like God. He wanted somebody killed, he killed them. He wanted to put somebody in a position, he put them in a position. He wanted them removed, he'd remove them. Yeah, he acted like he was God and he was pretty powerful, but God brought him down. God humbled him. God humbled him. And he's reminding Belshazzar the story. Yeah, Nebuchadnezzar was brought down. He says that, verse 20, his heart was lifted up and his mind was hardened in pride. He was disposed from the kingly throne and they took his glory from him. So if you were here last week, this is what we talked about in chapter 4. This was about maybe 25, 30 years before Nebuchadnezzar has another troubling dream. And remember Daniel tells him that tree that he dreamed about that was cut down. He said, that's you, Nebuchadnezzar. You're mighty, you're powerful, but God's going to cut you down. God's bringing you down so you know that he is the one true God. And yet the amazing thing with Nebuchadnezzar is he had this chance to like repent. And Daniel even told him, he said, Nebuchadnezzar, break off your sins by righteousness. Show mercy to people. In other words, repent and turn from how you're living. But Nebuchadnezzar didn't. In fact, a year after that, 
He was walking in his palace and he was bragging about all of this, this power and all that he had. And that very night, God cut him down. Nebuchadnezzar went literally crazy. He lost his mind. He lived like an animal for seven years until God showed him and humbled him and showed him that God is the one that sets up and brings down. And Nebuchadnezzar reached that point. It's amazing testimony. And we have every reason to think it was probably genuine that Nebuchadnezzar, this, this military power, this vicious ruler, God humbles. God changes him. And so Daniel, he is telling Belshazzar this story. He's like, Nebuchadnezzar, now Daniel didn't come out and say this, but I get the idea. What he's saying is, Belshazzar, Nebuchadnezzar, who was way powerful than you will ever be, God brought him down. He brought him down. And he says this, verse 22, he says, or verse 21, let's read that first. He was driven from the sons of men. This is talking about Nebuchadnezzar. His heart was made like the, the beasts and like wild donkeys. And they fed like with grass, like oxen. His body was wet with the dew. He's talking about the time when Nebuchadnezzar lived like an animal. And he said, till he knew that the most high God ruled in the kingdom of men and that he appointed over it whosoever he will. Nebuchadnezzar reached that point, Belshazzar. And here's the thing. Belshazzar, verse 22, he said, you haven't humbled your heart. Even though, now don't miss this. Even though you knew this. In other words, he's saying, Belshazzar, you knew this story. You knew this. Nebuchadnezzar may have been the one to tell him where he heard about it. But here's the thing, because it seems like Man, God's just going to act in swift judgment. They're having this party. They're, they're, they're desecrating holy vessels. And God shows up and says, you're done. Your, your days are numbered. Your kingdom's over. But yet, Daniel's saying, Belshazzar, you've had a whole life of, of, it's a pattern of arrogance. Even though you knew what happened to Nebuchadnezzar. In other words, you should have known better. Now, here's a, a principle I just want to interject right here. Learn from the mistakes of others. Don't repeat those same mistakes. Like you've heard, you've heard the, the phrase about those that don't learn from history, they're doomed to repeat it. Well, listen, learn from other people's mistakes. Now, look, sometimes we got to learn from our own, right? But as much as possible, learn from the mistakes of others and don't repeat those mistakes. How many of you, don't share with us all those mistakes, but how many of you, you don't want your kids to make some of the mistakes that you've made, right? Well, that's part of teaching and training. It's like, hey, you should know better. You should know better. Well, here Daniel's telling Belshazzar, you knew all this, man. You knew all this, but you didn't humble yourself. Oh, and he's not done yet. He's not done yet. He says, you've lifted up thyself against the Lord of heaven. You brought the vessels of his house before thee. And he says, your lords, thy wives, your concubines, you've drunk wine in them. And you've praised the gods of silver and gold and brass and iron and wood and stone. Those gods that don't see or hear or know. He says, and the God... In whose hand thy breath is, you have not glorified. In other words, he's saying the true God, 
in whose hand thy breath is, whose all are all thy ways you haven't glorified. Here's what he's saying. Make no mistake about this. He's saying, Belshazzar, the one true God who has given you the very next breath you're going to breathe. You haven't glorified him. You haven't acknowledged him. That the one true God holds your life in his hands. That he holds and controls the very next breath. And yet you have been arrogant towards God. You have not glorified God. You've had the example of, of Nebuchadnezzar. And yet you have chosen to be arrogant. And not only arrogant, but blatantly you have. have this is sac, what we would call sacrilege. Just taken holy vessels and you've desecrated them. You've desecrated them. And he says, now, now, Belshazzar, that was just, that was just the introduction. Now I'm going to tell you. Now I'm going to tell you what God's telling you through this message. He says, this is the writing that was written. Mene, mene, tekel you parson. This is the interpretation of the thing. Mene, God has numbered thy kingdom and finished it. Said, the party's over, and guess what? So is your kingdom. It's come to an end. God has numbered, God has numbered your kingdom and he's finished it. Tekel is that you're weighed in the balances and you're found wanting. Said, son, your life is not pleasing to God. And then he says, Perez, are you parson that you, par, Perez, thy kingdom is divided and it's given to the Medes and to the Persians. So the kingdom's over. It's done. God's handing it over to the Medes and Persians. Now remember Nebuchadnezzar's dream back from a few weeks ago? This is decades earlier. Nebuchadnezzar has that first dream of the statue. We talked about the meaning of that, how it was prophetic, how that, that Nebuchadnezzar was that head of gold. He was powerful. He was wealthy. But yet God said, there's another kingdom coming. The Medo-Persian, the, 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 the chest and the arms, the two arms, the, the Medes and the Persians, they're going to come together as one and they're going to defeat you. And what's amazing is, Daniel even told King Nebuchadnezzar, he said, they're not going to be as strong as Babylon, but God's going to let them win. And that's exactly what's going to happen here. The Medo-Persian Empire, they're coming in, they're going to invade, and they're going to take Babylon. This is amazing in verse 29, and it's a little bit, I got to be honest, it's a little bit intriguing. Like, why that, that Belshazzar would respond in this way? Because after he hears this sobering message, here's what he does. He commanded, then commanded Belshazzar that they clothed Daniel with scarlet and put a chain of gold upon his neck and make a proclamation concerning him that he should be the third ruler in the kingdom. Daniel's already told him he doesn't want these things. But yet Belshazzar's response is, Let's clothe you in, a, in, in fine clothes and give you a gold chain. And let's, I'm going to make you third ruler. We don't know if this is just Belshazzar just being oblivious to the whole situation still. Now, it doesn't seem like he's being, um, like he's mocking Daniel. That could be, though, because it seems like God's really already at this point got his attention. We don't know, but we just see he's still oblivious 
to the very danger that he's in right now. And then the Bible, not super dramatically, just matter of factly tells us this. It says in verse number 30, he says in, it says in that night was Belshazzar the king of the Chaldean slain. And Darius the Mede took the kingdom being about three score and two years old. So here's a rendering of um, the, an artist drew of what the ancient Babylon might have looked like. And what was happening was this. The Medo-Persians had it surrounded and had it surrounded for some time. And what they did was they stopped the river that flowed right through Babylon. They diverted it. And what, that, what happened was the, the level of that, that water went down. To where the enemy could just come walk right in under that wall. But there still would have been some kind of gate that would have, that would have come down. And yet Jeremiah, both Jeremiah and Isaiah the prophet predicted hundreds of years prior. They said the enemy is going to walk right through that gate. And somehow maybe it was, maybe they had inside people in Babylon. That's probably likely what happened. But somehow that gate, the one gate they would have had to still walk, get through, they walk through it. And the Medo-Persian Empire conquered Babylon that night. Belshazzar was killed. And now a new king is in charge. Darius the Mede, and now he's the ruler. And we see that God brought Belshazzar down in one night. Oh, he thought that his city was fortified. He thought this will never happen. And even after this warning, he's just oblivious. And yet what we see is this. The common theme in Daniel. God sets up and God takes down. That, that, God, that God raises up one king, but then he'll set that king down and raise up another. That God is in control of these events. God's in control. So what do we see from this account? Well, we see a few things. We see a few things. And in closing, let's look at these. Number one, we see this, that God is loving and merciful, but he's also holy and just. And there's that line where God says, like, enough is enough. And when you look at, when you look at God, you can't just, don't make the mistake of only looking at one attribute of God. Because sometimes that happens. And you guys have experienced that. Sometimes maybe you yourself have thought these things. I know I have. Or maybe someone brings this up to you. Maybe just in, in, in a questioning way of like, well, how can God who's loving allow some of this evil to happen? Right? We've heard that. We hear that a lot. And, and it's important that we understand something. That God has more than one attribute. Right? God isn't just loving He's all-powerful. But he's not just all-loving and all-powerful. God is all-knowing. And when you look at all of those attributes, what seems like something that's unjust and evil and harsh and, 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 and just a horrible thing, well, from God's perspective, it's not. Because God is loving, but he's also holy, and he's also just, and he's also all-knowing. So with those all of those attributes... God can take something that from our perspective seems evil or seems harsh, but yet when we know that he is 
loving, but he's also holy. And he's also all-knowing. He can take even what we look at as the greatest evil and tragedy in the world. And he has a justifiable reason for why he's allowing that to happen. And that's what we see here. Because you see, Babylon was raised up to judge, to judge Judah and Israel, but specifically here, Judah. Because they weren't keeping the Sabbath. They were worshiping idols. And for years and years, they, they were just disregarding God, God's own people. And so he raised up Babylon. But yet then we see God still holds Babylon accountable for their actions. That God is in control of all, but yet he still allows people to make choices and holds them accountable for those choices. And God is powerful enough that he can use all of those things for his honor and glory. And that's what's happening here. But God is merciful. God is loving. But he's also holy and just. And so I must point this out. There is a day of judgment coming. When we die, we're going to stand before our creator. And if you don't know Jesus Christ as your savior, then you're going to stand before a holy, righteous God having only your own righteousness. And that's a terrifying thought. But for those that know Christ, those that know the Lord is their savior, here's the, what, what's so glorious about the message of the gospel is that Jesus Christ is our righteousness, that Jesus Christ took the judgment that we deserve when he died on the cross. He lived the perfect righteous life that we could never live. He died on the cross to pay for our sins, rose from the dead. And then he says, whoever will believe, whoever will come to faith in Christ, Turn to faith in Christ. It says the, the righteousness of Jesus will be credited to your account. Us who don't deserve it. We who don't, we're rebels and sinners against the holy God. But yet the righteousness of Jesus can be placed on your account. Can be placed on my account. If I will believe, if I will turn and trust in Jesus Christ. But know this, there is a day. There is a day of, of justice that's ahead. If you don't know Christ, turn to him. Not only is God loving and merciful, he's also holy and just. We see this, God's word will always come to pass. This is another prophecy. God said this was what's going to happen. Babylon's going down. They're powerful. And that's what's so amazing about this, guys, is this. When Daniel was interpreting Nebuchadnezzar's dream, saying Babylon was going down, like Babylon was the superpower. So it wasn't like just this prophecy, this prophecy that everybody could see was probably going to happen anyway. No, this was when Babylon was a superpower. Yet Daniel said, God's going to bring Babylon down. And it's even specific how he's going to bring them down. It's going to be the Medo-Persian Empire. The two arms are coming together and they're going to overtake them. And that's what happened. God's word will come to pass. We're going to look at in a few weeks um, after Christmas, probably is when we'll be there. Most likely after Christmas. We're going to look at one of the most, in my opinion, the most one of the most prophetic chapters in all of the Bible. And this is one of the reasons that, that a lot of people will try to 
try to say that Daniel had to have been written later than what we think it was written because of how specific some of these prophecies are. It's going to be amazing. But what we see, we can have confidence that God's word comes to pass, even when it doesn't seem likely. Then thirdly, you never know. I don't know how much time that I have. You don't know how much time that you have. Look, if you don't know Christ, if you've never personally come to faith in Christ, you don't know how much time you've got left. Don't push that off. Don't ignore that. Don't make this mistake of Belshazzar of, of living just arrogantly, thinking that nothing's going to happen. No, there is a day of judgment that is coming. But as I said, listen, none of us have to face that judgment because Jesus Christ took that judgment upon himself. And, and he says that if you will believe, if you will turn to him as your Lord and Savior, that you and I can have eternal life, that the judgment that we deserve was placed on Jesus Christ on the cross. And that's what's so glorious about the cross. The cross, you see the love of God and the justice of God on full display. On full display. Turn to Jesus Christ. Don't assume you have longer. Don't assume that you have tomorrow. We see here that there was a line and God said, the party is over, Belshazzar. And God shows up with justice. You don't know how much long that you have left. I don't have this on the notes, but God just put this on my heart to say at the first, at the first service. And, and, and I think I should say it now. What's interesting is that Darius the Mede is going to now be in command. And we're going to see Daniel as an old man is still used greatly by God. In fact, Daniel is going to, and I won't give away the sermon next week, even though you could read ahead, but it's Daniel in the lion's den, right? Daniel in the lion's den. We're going to see Dan God's not done with Daniel. Daniel's an old man, but man, he's still being used by God in a great way. God's still going to be glorified, not just with, with Nebuchadnezzar and Belshazzar and the kingdom of Babylon, but now with the new regime. Under Darius, under the Medes and the Persians, God still has a purpose in Daniel. And here's the thing, no matter how young or how old you are, God has a purpose for you. God has a purpose for you in probably a much greater way than you realize. Despite of how old or how young, despite your past, despite of maybe things like, and, and maybe it was greatly convicting when we talked about what they were doing with holy vessels. Because here's the thing, that our body is a holy vessel. And maybe honestly, like that guilt just hits you because you've done things with this body. You've put substances in this body. You've, you've done things with other people that were immoral, that was not God's intention. And maybe you've even done harm to people. Or, But no matter what you have done, and I'm not saying that that erases the physical consequences here in this life, but I am saying no matter what you've done, no matter your past, that God can take a dirty vessel and make it holy. God can take that and use that for his glory. So no matter how old or how young you are, no matter what you've done, no matter what your past looks like, God has a purpose for you. 
God has a purpose. We talked about that last week with Nebuchadnezzar. No one's too far gone. Don't think that God has put you on the shelf and forgotten about you. God can use you and wants to use you greatly. And that's what he did with Daniel. Because Daniel was surrendered to God. Daniel didn't go through any circumstances we would want to go through. But Daniel was faithful. And God used him greatly for his glory.